As uh, Chase mentioned at the beginning of the service, my name is Devin Rossman. Uh, many of you uh, know me, and it's, it's a, I'm happy to see many of you again after a while, but it's also encouraging and exciting to see many new faces since the year and a half ago or so that we uh, moved from Kalamazoo after spending about three and a half years uh, serving with this church plant, and we're, uh, which is no longer a church plant, of course, but is an established church here in Kalamazoo. Uh, but I, I still look back on my time here with fondness and uh, learned a lot, things that I'm continuing to apply as I labor to plant a church in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, home of Central Michigan University. It's okay if you want to say boo, um, but, uh, but no. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you all, and it's, it's my delight to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be working through verses 5 through 10. It's on page 1021, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. 1 John chapter 1 starting at verse 5. Before I read the text this morning, though, uh, let's pray. We're going to ask the Lord to help us to understand, to help us to really take these things to heart, and that he would bear good fruits uh, in our minds, in our actions, in our desires, and all these things. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, Who are we that you would shine upon us, that you would give us anything good, that you would reveal even the slightest bit of information about your transcendent glory and excellence? In our fallen human condition, we are truly beggars. We don't have anything that we can point to to say, look, God, we deserve all sorts of amazing things from you. But instead, we come this morning with a humble recognition that if it weren't for your, your kindness, your benevolence, uh, we, would, we would have no idea about anything true one way or the other about you. We, we'd maybe be able to grasp at little bits of information. We'd certainly be able to look at nature and know something about your eternal power and divine nature, but it wouldn't be for us. It would be beyond us. It would be uh, apart from us. But we thank you that this morning we have a word from you. And I pray that we would listen, that we would listen with joy and with great humility, and that by your Spirit you would give us eyes to see, give us hearts to understand and that we, we would have a readiness uh, to live in light of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. First John chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. Now in verse 5 of our text, there are a couple of things we really should clarify before we dig into the rest of the text. Because when verse 5 says, this is the message we have heard, you may wonder, who is the we referring to? And when the text says, this is the message we have heard from him, who is the him? So let me explain first who the we is. Uh, the author doesn't explicitly say who he is, who, who's writing here in the opening verses of this letter, but there's a broad consensus that this was written by John, one of Jesus Christ's closest disciples and one of the 12 apostles who were commissioned to establish the early church. So that means that John here is writing as someone who was personally acquainted with Jesus of Nazareth. Someone who spent years at a time with this man. He's writing as someone who sat at Jesus' feet during the Sermon on the Mountain. As someone who was present, watching as Jesus healed the blind and cured the sick. He, he's speaking as someone who was present, even at the crucifixion. As someone who touched and talked to Jesus after, after his resurrection from the dead. And you'll also notice, though, that John isn't just writing about his own personal experiences. He's not just writing as one man, but he's writing on behalf of a multitude of people who have had such experience. He's writing on behalf of many who knew Jesus, who heard his voice. In verses 1 through 4, John says he's, he's writing about something we have heard, something that we have touched and seen, and so on. And John points out that this Jesus that he has personally known, he, he's not just unique because he was an extremely compassionate human being. He's, he's not just unique because he was a great moral teacher. But instead, when, when John is talking about this Jesus, he refers to him as that which was from the beginning. He, he speaks about him as the word of life, the eternal life that was with the Father. And what he's trying to get at here is he's telling us that this Jesus shares in God's own eternality and self-existence, meaning that Jesus himself was and even now is God. God has taken on human flesh. God has come down to intervene in human history and to dwell among us. And when we go to verse 5, John tells us, this is the message we have heard from him. Jesus is speaking on behalf of numerous companions and eyewitnesses who are close to Jesus, and he says, we have heard a message from God. And John tells us that this divine message is the message that he's about to summarize for us here in this letter. So what is this message from God? 
Well, over the verses that follow, John tells us. And, and this message has three basic parts. Uh, the, the parts I'm going to give you are, are worded a little bit differently than the outline in your bulletin. But let me go through them. Part one, the light of God. Part two, the lies of mankind. And part three, how God cleanses our unrighteousness. These are the three parts of the message we're going to look at. So we see part one, the light of God, in the second half of verse five. We read there that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the very first part of God's message, the very first thing that God wants us to know is simply who he is. He wants us to know what he's like. And notice where this information is, is coming from. Right? It's coming directly from the horse's mouth. I'm not saying that in an ir- irreverent way, but it's coming directly from God himself. Uh, though this information is coming through the Apostle John, it is not ultimately John's message. This message is not a human invention. It's not based on what I feel to be true about God. It's not based on what someone thinks, maybe hypothetically could be the case about who he is. But God reveals to us the truth about himself. And this makes it infinitely more reliable than than any ideas about God we could invent for ourselves. He gives us this message so we can truly know who he is instead of having views about God that are built on nothing more than blind speculation and wild guesses. It's worth noting, though, that when God reveals himself here and he says God is light, this doesn't literally mean that God is is simply a beam of sunlight, right? He's not saying that, uh, that God is just a few particles of photons. But instead, God knows our limitations, and he's communicating to us in a way that we can relate to, right? He brings this level down, so he makes a comparison with something that we can see, something our minds can, be, uh, can grasp and can, can wrap around so that we can better understand this divine being who is actually above and beyond us. And in many ways, this description is effective. It actually does communicate meaningful things about God's character and nature when we read here that God is light. Because it shows us that God is true, complete, 100% brightness and cleanness and moral perfection. God is the sum of absolute rightness, which is to say that God is righteous in all his thoughts all of his affections, all of his ways. Darkness is totally absent from God. There are no shadows in him, no dimly lit corners where evil monsters can hide, things like ignorance or malice or dishonesty. But in God, instead we see justice, we see mercy, we see love. There's no bondage to addiction, no attraction even toward the least bit of evil. No delight in temptation. There is no badness in God, only goodness. And another analogy could be helpful here. 
So if you go to your home and you, you pull your stove away from the wall and you look underneath, probably you're going to see some grease marks, you're going to see some dust bunnies, you're going to see a lot of stuff that looks kind of gross. And there are many parts in your house that you could probably think of that are like this. Could be under your refrigerator, uh, could be under your bed, behind your toilet, in the back of your closets, in your basement, in your attic, wherever all of our homes have some sort of spot some sort of blemish, some sort of dirty space. But imagine a home where the whole house, top to bottom, is absolutely immaculate, spotless, clean enough you could even eat off of it. Even all those chronically dirty places. And if you, if you can imagine a house like that, which I, I'm still struggling to, to think of a house like that, it gets you a little bit closer to thinking what God is like and the absolute purity of his being and character. There are no dingy spaces in him. No deceit, no moral disease, no desires for anything other than righteousness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. More than this, though, God isn't just fully righteous, but God is forever righteous. God is light yesterday, today, forever. He is the unchanging essence of perfection. It was true before the foundations of the earth. It's true today. And if the Lord tarries, it'll be true 10 billion years from now. He has no darkness, and he never will. He is presently, perfectly, perpetually light. But, but why is this important to recognize? Why does it matter that God is perfectly good and just and right? What difference does this make? Well, for one thing, it should lead us to humble reverence before such a God. We do ourselves and our children, and even friends, neighbors, the people around us, we do them a serious disservice if we have an overly casual attitude toward God. As a society, even as Christians, it's easy for us to lose our amazement and our awe concerning the perfections of God. And you'd expect a Sunday morning worship service like this to be the time that people are most aware of God's splendor, most impressed by his beauty. But so often when we wander into church on Sunday mornings, we find ourselves evaluating other people's outfits or thinking about the crock pot waiting for us at home. And it's, it's easy for us to miss the sacred one who is in our midst. God isn't a game He's not just a philosophical idea. He's not a BFF, right? God is the king of light, majesty, glory. And this teaching that God is light, it should also lead us into a, a humble self-evaluation and, and reflection why would such a perfect holy God find human beings to be acceptable in his sight? Knowing what we know about his spotlessness and knowing what we know about our spottedness, our, our darkness, our blemished state, 
When we consider the faults in our character and the gaps of our knowledge and the, the great disparity that lies behind the reverence that we show toward God, which is weak and flimsy, and the reverence that he deserves, it just seems incredible that God would take any notice of us, that there would be any hope that we could actually have friendship and fellowship with a God of such greatness. See, you, you and I, we, we are not the unchanging standard of excellence and goodness. We can get our moral compass way messed up. We can call good things evil and evil things good. We can misidentify who we are and why we exist. No one in this room is pristine and perfect. Our human experience is plagued by darkness. And so, so we should humbly reflect, if God is light, how can darkness dwell in the presence of light. How could a holy God relate to unholy creatures? What will God, in his bright, shining light, do about our darkness? And our text tells us, he tells us, we are told here how an unholy creature can have hope of having fellowship with a holy God. We're, all, we're going to unpack all that in a minute, but, but first, the text warns us about two errors. When people try to explain how God and man can be on friendly terms, they, they often don't land on the right answer as their default. Not, it's not natural to us to cling to the truth. But instead, humanity tends to believe one of two different types of lies. Either they believe the lie that God is actually unrighteous, rather than righteous, or they believe that the lie that people are sufficiently righteous, that they've actually pleased God adequately, or at least can. One, one lie tries to bring God too low, but the other lie tries to exalt mankind too high. And so we're going to deal with both of these. So, so the first lie that we're going to deal with here is the lie that, that God is unrighteous. And I'm not saying here that these people who believe the lie that God is unrighteous, I'm not saying that they believe necessarily that that God is evil. But what I mean is that these people have difficulty accepting that God is actually committed to perfect justice. They figure that God is the sort of guy who who bends his standard every once in a while, that, that God will let sinners into heaven by tolerating some of our wrongdoings or by pretending to look the other way, uh, that, that God is ultimately just, he, he's flexible, he's permissive, he's inconsistent. That's the sort of unrighteousness that people can often believe uh, that God has. And the people who think this way are identified for us in verse 6. These are people who say that they have fellowship with God, but all the while they walk in darkness. They believe that such a thing is a possibility. You know, when the text speaks of people who are walking in darkness, this is speaking of those who have an ungodly pattern of life. They aren't holding up God's word as a lamp for their feet. They have no love of divine things. Yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this life trajectory of darkness, they claim to have fellowship with God. In other words, these people are claiming that corruption, idolatry, greed, arrogance, moral darkness, that none of these things really disturb God, that none of these things actually uh, are the sort of thing that, that God is bothered by. 
They're claiming that God actually has warm-hearted fellowship with darkness. And of course, when we put it that way, we realize how troubling such a statement is. At first, it might sound appealing to have a lenient God, to have one who bends the rules for us, to have a God who turns the other direction whenever we have the urge to indulge ourselves. Right? At first, that might sound kind of nice. But in reality, this would be a nightmare. Because if it were possible, if it were actually possible for God to move one inch toward leniency, toward saying, I'm I'm just going to let sin go. I'm not going to really bother with it. Well, who's to say that God isn't going to take that inch and move a mile? If he's a God who ignores one immoral deed, he's willing to, to make that step, what's keeping him from allowing a million? If God at any point changes to be anything other than perfectly true and perfectly righteous, then he immediately becomes unreliable, unstable, unpredictable. If God bends under the influence of evil, then we are left with the hopeless realization that the king of the universe is secretly a crook. He's an unjust judge. Or possibly he's something far worse. But we can't possibly affirm that God is anything short of just and righteous because of what we've already seen in verse 5. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Right? There's nothing in God that tolerates darkness. Nothing in himself that's sympathetic to darkness or that finds darkness desirable. It's absurd to believe that light and darkness can inhabit the same space. Right? We just know this from our own common experience. But this is also true on a moral plane. The, a righteous God will not form an allegiance to darkness. It's true that God enters into fellowship with sinners who have been rescued out of their darkness. There's a great hope to this. But God doesn't have friendship with darkness because God is light. But there's one more issue, actually, with believing that someone walking in darkness can have fellowship with God. Because if someone is choosing to walk in darkness, it proves that they actually don't want the light. To those who walk in darkness, God's word will seem irrelevant. His commands will feel burdensome. His promises will seem insignificant. God's very existence and presence will perhaps even seem inconvenient. We may want to say we have fellowship with God, either to to please our parents or to appease our guilty consciences, but we won't actually want the real thing if we are secretly having a love affair with darkness. Those who walk in darkness cannot have fellowship with God. Why? Because they will not. They will refuse to. They will not want God's light. That's why someone walking in darkness can't have fellowship with God, in addition uh, to the other things we've already mentioned. God and his perfect righteousness will not change. We must reject the lie that God is unrighteous and instead affirm that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. 
But when people are confronted with the righteousness of God, there's a second lie that people will sometimes believe. They believe the lie that people are righteous, that people have somehow made it, that the people have somehow reached that level where God says, yes, you, you've hit the mark. Good job. Way to go. Verses 8 and 10 describe people who claim to be without sin, which literally means that they're claiming that they haven't missed God's intent for their life, that they are spot on with where God wants them to be. Even if they're not claiming to be absolutely righteous, they're at least claiming to be sufficiently righteous in the eyes of God to meet his standard. But even though people may think they're on track with God, the Bible here is clear. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? This is a lie. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. And his word is not in us. It's important to note, though, that this lie that we're talking about can actually take a couple different forms. Some people believe this lie because they have a distorted view just of themselves. Though they find faults with all the people around them, sure, I have, I have an easy time believing that, that you have fallen short of God's standard and you have fallen short of God's standard, but they can't see anything wrong with themselves. They, they have an excuse, always, they, they, some sort of explanation for why their anger or their gossip or their social manipulation is warranted. They are always the innocent victim, but never the guilty party. Other people, though, uh, they just have a view of humanity, of, of all of humanity, which is skewed. Uh, they, they may believe that deep down everyone is basically good. And this isn't really an uncommon belief, right? This, this, a lot of people think this way. They, they might acknowledge that people aren't perfect, that they sometimes make poor decisions, but at the end of the day, they claim that everyone has a good heart. You've probably heard something like this before. Perhaps someone even talking about a family member, like a nephew. Okay, so let's say they're talking about their nephew. They say, yeah, he's been messing around getting his girlfriend pregnant. He's been in and, out, in and out of jail for possessing drugs. He can't hold a job. He has a quick temper and rebels against authority. But this person will say, he's a good kid. Deep down, he's got a good heart. Right? Maybe you've heard something like this before. But bear with me a minute. Maybe, just, just maybe, this nephew has made these bad decisions because he has bad desires. Because, uh, not, not because he has a good heart, but because he has a bad heart. And, and this is what the Bible teaches, right? Jesus himself in Luke 6.45, he teaches that bad hearts will produce bad actions. A, a tree is known by its fruits. But I want to be careful here. We're not just pointing to people outside the church, right? We're not just saying, oh, yeah, those people are like that. I get that. But it would be easy to just latch on to a couple of people we know whose, whose lives look like train wrecks and say, yeah, they've fallen short. They haven't hit God's standard. They, they clearly need, need Jesus or something, right? But, but Romans 3.10, it laments that none of us are righteous. None is righteous, no, not one. Really, it's only God's kindness that prevents all of our lives from looking like train wrecks. We all have moral failings, and certainly that's the reason why you don't have to teach your child how to be bad, how to uh, be unkind to, 
to misbehave, but, but all the time we're teaching our children how to be honest, how to be gentle, how to be kind. Uh, even in our own minds, in our own desires, we, we, we have these thoughts or these uh, fantasies that can sometimes creep up unbidden. It's like, where, where did this come from? Well, it came from our sin-sick hearts. Our hearts aren't righteous as God is righteous. We have all missed God's mark. Now, it's possible that some, some people here may, may still object. Sure, I've made a couple mistakes here and there, but those things really shouldn't disqualify me. God couldn't possibly expect people to be perfect. That would be unreasonable. Right? You've probably heard arguments like this too, but, but when, when we make an argument like this, it's important to really understand what we're doing. Because if we say this, then what we're, what we're claiming is that a God who insists on perfect righteousness is in the wrong. We are refusing to take the blame for missing his mark, and instead what we're doing is we're actually blaming God. We're, su- we're suggesting that if we don't measure up to be good and righteous and godly, it's God's fault. Your standard is wrong. But friend, the Bible says that this is a lie. It's a lie for us to to accuse God of wrongdoing for being right. You and I and everyone on the face of the earth, we have a sin problem, and it's a real sin problem, that if nothing were to be done about it, it would separate all of humanity from God. It's something we can't just wish away. It's something... We can't just erase from our life history by our own efforts. Uh, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So when when we're confronted with these two things, both with the perfect righteousness of God and when we are confronted with the true, actual, persistent unrighteousness of humanity, what can we do? Right? How, how can these two parties be reconciled? How can human beings become acceptable to a God of light? The problem is too big for us to fix. We need nothing less than a miraculous work of God's own intervention. We need the God of light himself to rescue us from our lies and our lusts and our lewdness. We need God to make us clean. And this is the third part of God's great message, which is included here for us in 1 John chapter 1. We see here how God cleanses our unrighteousness. Notice in our text, uh, there's just one place that we're pointed to to be cleansed from our unrighteousness. We're told that we must go to God. We are cleansed specifically by the person and work of God, the Son, Of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's where cleansing comes from. And verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Spotless house type of cleansing. 
you'll notice that it says that God is faithful to do this. It's because he's promised that all who come to Jesus will receive this cleansing. He won't back out of this promise. He will be faithful to this promise. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus. And it says that God is just to forgive us our sins. And the reason he is just to do this is because that sin was paid for. The legal penalty for our wrongdoing and sin was carried by Jesus Christ on the cross. He did it for us to make us clean. This isn't something that we earn. This isn't something we can brag about and say, look at us. Look at what we did. I'm so amazing. But this is something where we fall on our faces and we say, God is so good. God is so amazing. God gives us this new status through his son, Jesus Christ, and through Christ alone. I do want to just quickly point out, though, briefly, uh, when verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, our focus here shouldn't be on the act of confessing. Right? It's, it's important for us to confess our moral bankruptcy, our guilt under God's law, and our powerlessness to save ourselves. That's, that's very important. But confessing these things to God or to a priest or to, to whoever, the act of confessing is not what makes us clean. Confessing is simply our admission that we need cleansing. What we need is Jesus right? We need Jesus Christ to wash us. We are made clean by his work, not by our work, not by our confession, but by his finished work. When we receive him, we receive his righteousness, and that is the basis for our confidence before a God of light. Yet you'll notice that John doesn't stop there because John recognizes that there are some people who are, who are walking in darkness, and they will claim I've received Jesus. I love God. I, I'm a Christian. But there won't be any change in that person's life. There won't be any evidence that that person actually has any interest or love or, or desire for God's light at all. And John is very concerned that we, that we acknowledge and profess and speak as those who believe in Jesus, but he's concerned about more than that. He doesn't just want us to have a bald statement confessing Jesus as our hope. But he wants those who have come to the light through faith in Jesus to also walk in the light. And this is why verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And what John is saying here is he acknowledges that right faith will produce right practice. It's impossible in John's mind that someone who's continually strutting around in the darkness could legitimately have fellowship with God and cleansing through the blood of Jesus. As evangelical Christians committed to the gospel of God's free grace, we must insist that we are made righteous through faith alone in Christ alone. Right? A, a, a life of changed, a changed life of walking in the light, that is not in any way something we point to and say, this is what gets me on good terms with God. But it's important for this to be a reaction, a response in our lives 
when we see what Jesus has done. Our, our faith alone is the basis for our righteousness, but that faith doesn't remain alone. When faith takes root in our hearts, it will start to become visible in our priorities and our passions and our actions. We should never come to the conclusion that God doesn't care about how we live. The Bible makes it clear that we are saved from darkness, not so that we would continue to wallow around in the mud, not so that we would continue to hide ourselves in the shadows, but he saves us from our darkness so that we would be free to walk in the light. He calls us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Certainly this isn't a call for us to say, you have to be perfect now, but this is instead a call for our definition of light and righteousness to be set by God's terms. What does God say is light? What does God say is righteousness? That's where I'm going to walk. We've been cleansed from unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus so that we would love this righteousness more, not less. So that we would practice goodness and mercy more, not less. Those who walk in the light as God is in the light show that their hearts have been touched by the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. Those who walk in the light show that they have ended their allegiance to darkness. Those who walk in the light show that they have real fellowship with God. The cleansing work of a righteous God doesn't just change our words, but it really does, little by little, day after day, change our lives. And God himself helps us in this pursuit. He pours out his spirit so that we may set aside that old self of unrighteousness and daily be putting on the new self which is being remade after the image and likeness of Jesus. This is a message we need to hear because as R.C. Sproul once said, the human dilemma is this. God is holy and we are not. We need to reckon with the fact that one day every man, woman, and child will stand before the glorious white throne of heaven and will, will face the great judge. And he is absolute, pure, perfect light. We will either come into his presence polluted by darkness and corruption or we will come before him cleansed by the blood of his son clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So let me plead with you all, and this is directed back at me too. I'm pleading with myself. Let's not be complacent with darkness anywhere, anyhow. Don't make it a routine to watch it, to listen to it, to be fascinated by it. Let's not celebrate it. Let's not chase after it. But instead, with God's help, let's turn our eyes to something better. Let's lift our eyes and set our hearts on the radiance of God himself. When he opens our eyes to see his glory and greatness and goodness, it really is better than any other pleasure or pursuit. If we get a glimpse of who God is, we won't want darkness anymore. In fact, our response will likely be the same response as what John had. Right? We won't just want to enjoy God for ourselves, but we're going to want to proclaim it to other people. 
will want to proclaim a message much like this one, that the God of light, inapproachable light, of all goodness and wonder and awe and glory and happiness, that God has stooped down and he has saved wretches like us from our darkness. And this is a message that we need to hear, sure, but it's a message that many others need to hear. Your cousins, your coworkers, your roommates, your neighbors. It's a message for every nation, every race, every caste, every language, every income level, every educational attainment. You can have peace with a God of perfect light because Jesus has died to purchase your forgiveness. Every single stain of sin is washed by him. And this message from God, it is trustworthy. It is valuable. It is important. And whether you've heard it a thousand times, or whether you're hearing it for the first time this morning, let's now pray that God would use his word to draw us into a closer fellowship with him. And that he would let his light shine upon us more and more. Please pray with me. God, I thank you that that we have not been abandoned to darkness, but that you sent your Son into our darkness to deliver us from the domain of darkness so that we might be transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness, in whom we have redemption. I pray that we would continue to recognize that the God that is speaking to us in the scriptures, that you, O oh God, you are not just some sort of trite, feeble grandfather in the sky who is timid or incompetent, but instead that you are God. Reframe our understanding of your perfection, the strength of your justice and government, your wisdom, your all-seeing gaze. Lord, please help us to recognize that you are far grander than our wildest imaginations. And I pray that you would also help us to see that our hearts are far darker than we would care to admit so that we would not rest with apathy, so that we would not be indifferent toward this darkness, but that we would come clinging to Jesus and saying, make me whole, heal me, and that we would indeed find healing in your son, that we would find forgiveness, that we would find not only a cleansed conscience, but also a newfound uh, confidence to come before your throne and to dwell there forever not fearing your wrath, not fearing being exposed, but instead knowing that we are clean. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment, I do pray that you would help these words, these audible words, uh, to, to be seen in new ways so that we would grasp onto the truth and life that is in Jesus with a renewed earnestness, and a renewed joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.